You know, something that has really dramatically changed in our society, and you'd really have to be living under a rock not to have noticed it, is a society's attitude towards sex and sexual matters. It seems that a lot of these conversations that were once private are now very public. Topics of sex and sexuality has moved from late night TV shows all the way to daytime cartoons. Right, it's moved out of the bedroom and it's moved into the classroom. And what we see is a massive change in society's attitude towards sex and sexuality. And I'm only 40 years old and I've seen a massive shift in my life. I can only imagine what the people older than me must feel like. In fact, can we give anyone over the age of 40, let's give them a hand right now. But let me just share some examples. When I was a kid, it was just assumed that if you were getting married, you'd probably waiting until you're married, your wedding day, to have sex. In fact, your honeymoon night was quite a... Uh, celebrated and looked forward to thing. When I was young, if a couple moved in together before their wedding day, scandalous. It was a complete scandal, guys. Like those of you who are younger than me, you don't understand. It was scandal. No one did that. Right? If you had an affair, if you were caught out in adultery, you would be fired. You could lose your job for that. Some people would flee town from the shame of their affair. Topics like homosexuality, oh my word, weren't even discussed, was so rare, it certainly was not in any way acceptable or praised, like not at all in society when I was younger. And then to add to that, topics like transgenderism or sexual identity, guys, those were concepts we had never heard of. And so quickly society has changed. So quickly, the, the, the public's view on sexual matters has changed. And I believe it's happened so fast that the church hasn't quite figured out how to even respond. These things have happened at breakneck speed. I mean, it just happened so quickly. And, and we've become so used to these things that the church is kind of left because we know, like, doesn't the Bible speak into some of these issues? Like, doesn't the Bible say things about this? And does it really say things against this? And... We don't even know where we stand. It's happened so fast in our society that I think the church has been a little bit left in the dust and most Christians feel silenced because they don't know what to say and they, they don't know how to act. And we're not even sure, like, what should my response be? Is this okay now? Is this not? We don't, we don't even know what our response should be. I mean, it's so common in society. I want you to think about the last time you watched a TV series or a movie where the romantic leads did, well, let's say where they waited until marriage before they had sex. Is there even one example that comes to mind? Even one reference? Uh, I mean, and how common is it, even now in cartoon shows, for there to be some member of the LGBTQI plus community represented? In fact, that kind of representation is praised. It's applauded in our society. And it has very much left Christians confused and the church confused and silenced. And I think sometimes the church has even acted very immaturely. We've acted incorrectly, which hasn't really helped the situation because what we see in society is that all these things that just like 20, 30 years ago were frowned upon, suddenly they've very quickly been tolerated and then accepted and then affirmed right so it just been like well we'll kind of tolerate this okay now now we'll we'll allow this but now we affirm it like society has changed so quickly and we've got to ask a question as we're dealing with the series of how to love like Jesus right and we've seen like Jesus wants us to love impossible people he wants us to love like the haters and he wants us to love the, the criminals and the broken and those who have hurt us and our enemies like what is our response to those who maybe sexually are, are not in line with Scripture? What's our response to the sexually immoral? And I'm so grateful that the Bible addresses these things 
really head on. In fact, one of the best places the Bible addresses some of these issues is in the book of First and Second Corinthians. And the reason is because the city of Corinth in those times, for those of you who know that history, was a very sexually active community. A lot like our communities nowadays. Some people think, oh, this is like modern and it's new. But there was many ancient times where sexual activity was rampant. In fact, in the city of Corinth, you would find the temple of Amaphrodite, who was a goddess of fertility and love. And part of worshiping Aphrodite, the goddess, in the temple would be open public acts of sex. So this is what would be happening in the city of Corinth. Sex was open it was public. Homosexuality was strife in the ancient Greek and Roman empires. It was everywhere. It was rampant. So Paul is now, he's setting up churches in all these different places. He's setting up churches now in the city of Corinth, and he wants to bring correction. He, he's saying, hey, guys, you've given your lives to Jesus. Now, this is how I want you to live. You've given your lives to Jesus. Now, this is what you should do. And so from that perspective, in an attitude of correction, Paul writes, to the Christians and the churches that are in the city of Corinth. And this is what he says, and you can join me. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 9. Paul writes this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Look at someone and say, don't be deceived. Okay, and let's just be frank. There's a lot of deception going around. I think that's why Christians are so confused. But he says, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So here, just in these two verses in 1 Corinthians 6, we see a whole lot of things that the Bible is calling sexual immorality. I'll get that later. The first thing that the Bible calls sexual immorality is fornication. Don't I have like the best associate pastor? Can we give Louis a hand? Fornication means sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. So the, these are people who perhaps before marriage, they're sleeping together, there's intercourse, maybe they're moving in together, they're functioning as house, husband and wife. Maybe this is your kind of one-night stand, your quick hookup through Tinder, right? Fornication, sex outside of the bounds of marriage. Next thing that Paul mentioned there was adultery. This is having sexual intercourse with someone who you're not married to. So you're married, but now you're having sexual intimacy with someone who isn't your spouse. The next thing that Paul mentions on the list is homosexuality. Now this is same-sex attraction, and Paul, he's actually quite graphic when he's mentioning homosexuality. He talks about the homosexuals, and the sodomites. In other words, he's talking about both the active and the passive roles within a homosexual relationship. And you might wonder, Paul, why are you being so graphic? Like, why are you, like, describing what happens there? But he's doing it because homosexuality was really so commonplace in the Greek and Roman cultures. We often think of it as kind of a new phenomenon. It certainly was not a new phenomenon in those ancient days. In fact, even as we look at Roman and Greek leadership, History will tell us that uh, Plato was probably a homosexual. 14 of the, the 15 first emperors in Rome practiced homosexuality. Even Caesar Nero, who was the current emperor now in Paul's time when he's writing this, we know he practiced homosexuality. So it was rampant in the Greek and Roman Empire. And actually, homosexuality isn't really mentioned a lot in the Bible, but it is mentioned seven times. We read about this sexual act. In Genesis 19, Leviticus 19 and 20, Judges 19, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. And in all of those instances, the Bible makes it very clear that homosexuality is a sin. 
that God did not design us for that kind of sexual encounter, that that's not what he has willed for us. Now, don't switch me off. There's more to the message. Because I know straight away, just me making that statement that homosexuality is a sin, I know I've lost a bunch of you. I know just making a statement like that, I will be labeled with many labels. I'll be called narrow-minded, old-fashioned, out of touch, bigoted, probably the biggest one, intolerant. And in a, in a society that worships tolerance, you have to be tolerant to everything except Christianity. And in a society that worships tolerance, seeming to be intolerant about any group of people, is like the biggest offense you can commit. And so in saying that, I realize that even just me making that statement now, at some point in our society, the way it's going, I would probably be open to a criminal charge or even jail time. That's where our society is headed. And we have to realize at some point, we're going to have to be like the disciples who were pulled in front of courtrooms and would say to the people in authority, well, you decide who I should follow, God or man. But as for me, I will follow God and not man. And there is definitely a time coming. There's a time coming, guys, where that scripture is going to be very real for us. And so we see here, these are three of the sexual acts mentioned there in 1 Corinthians, but it's not the only sexual things that the Bible refers to as sin or sexual immorality. As you go through scripture, you pick up, there's quite a few things that the Bible starts to list sexually as sin or as an issue. The next one I'll mention is prostitution. When you are paying for sexual activity. We also know that uh, transgenderism is forbidden in Scripture. You go read Deuteronomy 22 verse 5. We know that the Bible speaks against lust or entertaining lust with your eyes, which would rule out pornography, and Jesus would equate that to adultery. The Bible in other places will speak against polygamy. This is when you have more than one spouse, and you're sexually active with more than one woman, even though you're in some kind of covenant, look at someone and say, one is enough. I promise you it is. Another, uh, another sexual activity of the Bible says is immorality is bestiality. This is sexual intercourse with animals. The Bible forbids that, and it also forbids incest. Sleeping with your brother or sister or parents, and the last one that is forbidden in Scripture is pedophilia. These are all listed in Scripture as being under the banner of sexual immorality. And when you start to look at this list, what I find really surprising is that in the last 20, 30 years, one by one, these have become socially acceptable, legal, and celebrated. And that's just what's happened in my lifetime. All of these, and you have to know, church, let's not be ignorant anymore. This is coming. These are next. Already, we are seeing polygamy being celebrated. Already, we're seeing reality TV shows where they follow people. Even in South Africa, they've got those shows, right? They're following people. Part of the conversation, very much so. We're seeing these other forms of sexual activity almost now being advocated for. They're trying to change the name of pedophilia to, to minor attraction. We've seen brands in the last year get into a lot of trouble. Brands like Balenciaga and Target get into a lot of trouble. Why? Because they are sexualizing children. We know things like incest and even bestiality are fighting for a voice and they are identifying now as a minor oppressed community. And that's also just their sexual attraction and 
They can't be changed. And you wouldn't ask a person who writes with the left hand to change to the right hand. So why would you ask someone who's attracted to children or animals to change? So we've got to know that, yes, I know we can look at that and say, never. But that's what we did 30 years ago. As we looked at the list, we were like, well, that would never be socially okay and acceptable. And now it's not just okay, it's celebrated. And so we know as we look to the next 20, 30 years, and maybe it will even be sooner than that, that these things that the Bible rules as immoral, sexually immoral, will absolutely become legal, allowed. It will probably at some point become celebrated. And so we have to start asking as a church, as Christians, what do we do? Because because of the oppression, we have been muted and silenced. And yet if we continue to be so silenced, what's going to happen to our kids? Just because society is allowing something does not mean God's okay with it. In fact, what Paul would tell the Corinthian church is that, hey, those who engage in this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a big statement. What, what Paul was doing was he was tying morality to eternity. And he was saying there is no space in Scripture for someone who actively lives out in any kind of immorality and accepts that as their identity. In fact, that whole idea is really anti-Christian. Scripture would tell us that if you are engaged in anything that the Bible calls sin, we are to fight that sin and come back to repentance. So so the Bible is saying, hey, if you are actively engaged in this and you are unrepentant and you are not trying to fight the sin, you're not acting as a Christian. In fact, it's evidence that you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ. It's evidence that you are not following God or His ways. What differentiates a Christian's life from a non-Christian is our ability to overcome sin, to turn from those fleshly desires. And so the Bible gives no support to someone who simply just accepts sin, who continues in it without repentance. That person simply just can't be a Christian. And that's what Paul's telling us. The reality, guys, is we can disagree on a lot of secondary issues in Scripture. And it might be okay for us to disagree on those things because they don't affect eternity. In other words, we might disagree on baptism. You might believe when you're baptized, you must be dunked forward. And I might believe you must be dunked backwards. And you might say, no, you must be sprinkled with water. And you might say, no, you must be sprayed down with a fire hose. We can disagree on those things. It doesn't affect our eternity. You might disagree on our theories on the the rapture. Or on the end times. You might disagree on the use of spiritual gifts within the church. Those are secondary issues. But we cannot disagree on what the Bible labels as sexual immorality. Because it's saying if you live in this unrepentant, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is an eternal issue. In fact, if you look back at what Paul is saying in verse 11, as he's writing to the churches. He says there very clearly, this is what you used to do. But now this is not who you are. Some of you used to do this. And perhaps you're a Christian who used to practice this. This is Paul's whole point is that we no longer follow the ways of the world because now we follow Jesus Christ. So what is our response? What should we do when someone comes up to you and says, you know what? I'm just going to tell you, like, I'm busy having an affair. I just want to need to share with someone. Well, what's our response when some guy wants to show you the kind of porn that he's into? What's our response when a Christian couple who's dating come and excitedly tell you that they're moving in together? They can't wait. But they're not yet married. What is our response to these issues as Christians? Well, I want us to learn from Jesus Christ who loved so well. He was our example of love. That's what the whole series is based on. And we're going to be looking at one of the interactions Jesus had with someone caught in sexual immorality. In fact, he catches someone or someone was caught in the act of adultery, number two here on the list. 
How did Jesus respond to them? Well, let's look together in the book of John chapter 8 from verses 3. Here's what it says. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. How embarrassing. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, but what do you say? They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down. And what did he do? He started to write in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where, where are your accusers? Don't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. The first thing we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus was not scared to be honest. Jesus was, in fact, always honest. Look at someone and say, Jesus is always honest. He is always honest. And guys, the number one thing Jesus did more than anything else, more than healings or anything else, is that he taught. And very often when he taught, he ruffled feathers. He was honest, and we know he was honest because people would walk away offended with him. They would say things like, this teaching is too difficult to hear. And it's not because they didn't understand it, it's because they didn't want to accept it. They understood what he was saying. The theologians even have whole little uh, sections of scripture they put aside and they call it the difficult sayings or the difficult teachings of Jesus. Jesus was very honest. He would often, often offend people with his honesty. And in verse 11, he's very honest with this woman who's caught in adultery. In fact, he calls it a sin. He says to her, go and sin no more. Now notice that Jesus uses that specific term, sin, for the act of adultery. He doesn't call it her mistake. He doesn't call it her hang-up or her preference or her alternate lifestyle. No, he calls it what it is. Sin, and what Jesus was doing for this woman caught in adultery, is he was framing for her the way God views her sexual act of adultery. And the way God views it is as something that is sin. Jesus calls sin, sin. And he teaches us in this that one of the most loving things you can do is be honest with someone. And if you really want to love someone, tell them the truth. Do not love people all the way to hell. That is not love. If you want to love someone, be honest with them. Jesus was honest. And I know, guys, in Scripture, there's a lot of inconvenient truths. And there's a lot of unpopular truth. But it's still the truth because I want to say without any shame, without any doubt, that I believe that this is an inspired word of God. I believe that this is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And this is given for our good. And that if it's in here, it's good. That there is a God who invented and created life and knows exactly how we should live it. And the only reason he would say no to something is because it's bad for us. Even his no for us is in response to his yes for us. And so we accept that this is the inspired word of God. And so as Jesus is busy talking with her, he calls it sin. But notice that he doesn't even mention or deal with her sexual preferences. All he's honing in on is her sexual practice. He doesn't shame her for being a sexual woman. He doesn't shame her for having a sex drive or sexual desires. And you know why he doesn't? Because God gave those to her. Hey, let's just remember quickly. Can we take sex back from the world? Sex is ours. My God created that. Your God created that. Sex belongs to God. And in the confines of marriage, how he's designed it, it's beautiful. And, and it's a blessing. And it's holy. 
and it's sacred and it's commanded. Do you know that God commands you to have sex within marriage? So within that, it's beautiful, but the world has tried to steal it and distort it and pervert it. But when Jesus is dealing with her, he's not condemning her sexuality. He's just condemning how she chose to express her sexuality. He's not condemning her preferences. He's condemning that she chose to act on those preferences. Guys, it's one thing to have a preference sexually or an orientation. But it's another to practice it. And it's our practicing of our sexual desires that has to come in line with God's word. She was attracted to a man outside of her marriage covenant. That was her current sexual preference. But it was the practicing of that that made it a sin. It is natural, by the way, when you are dating, of course you want to sleep together. And those sexual impulses you have, God put them in there. They're holy things. They're good things. God didn't make mankind and it was like, whoops, what are they doing? No, he made them and says, I command you to do that. Be fruitful and multiply. How are we fruitful? Not by holding hands. Right? He commands it. He's not surprised by sex. And so I understand it might be natural for you to be very sexually attracted to someone who's not your spouse. It is the practice of that preference that becomes the issue. You know that even Jesus was tempted and yet he did not sin. It is not the temptation that is sinful. It's the entertaining of that sin, the entertaining of that preference that becomes lust and often that lust becomes action. I've met gay Christians who have committed, even though they have that preference, they've committed to live celibate lifestyles because they don't want to fall into the practice because it's only in the practice of this that you're on this list, not in the preference. Even here in 1 Corinthians 6, as Paul is writing about these things, he's always writing about it in the present tense. Those who are adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, not those who once committed these, but these who are ongoingly committing these unrepentantly, saying, God, I'm going to do what I want, and I don't really care what you say. Well, then you're not following God, and you have not surrendered your life to him. And so, yes, you might have fallen in these because of your preference, but the moment you stop and repent and turn away, you come off the list. We have to remember that this is a list of people that Jesus loves. He still sees the individual. Jesus loves the adulterer. He just doesn't love adultery. Jesus loves the pedophile, but he does not love pedophilia. Jesus loves a transgender man or woman. He just doesn't love transgenderism. It's in the practicing that we cross a line. And I know, I know, I know I'm going to get the emails and the messages. I know without a doubt that people are listening to this thinking, well, that's not fair. Why can't people live out their sexual preference? Why can't they be who they, and they call it, really are? Why can't they go with their natural needs? They were born this way. Well, I want to remind you, like, that's all fine and dandy. And you think it's unfair to subdue a sexual preference until you get here and you're like, whoa, what happens when they want to sleep with their sister or their little niece or the family dog? Now you're like, no, they should subdue their preferences. Now it's different. Now it's not unfair. Can I just remind you guys that a massive part of our walk with Jesus is about denying our flesh. We all need to lay down our flesh, not exalt it, but crucify it. Every single one of us. That's what scripture tells us. Matthew 18, 24 says, then Jesus said to his disciples, 
If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Look at someone and say, deny yourself. Take up his cross and follow me. There is, we cannot follow both ourselves, our flesh and Jesus. In order to follow Jesus, it means self-denial. And that's not just for someone with a different sexual preference. It's for all of us. There are sexual preferences we must deny. There are things about our flesh we must deny in order to follow Jesus. It is anti-Christian, once again, to think that what God wants for us is to go with our every fleshly inclination. Because you know what? I would be in jail. Because there are times I just want to slap you. Or there's times I might today want to kill you. Or there's times I want to take what's yours because I like what's yours and I don't have it. And I'm going to take it. No, Jesus says, kill that flesh. Kill the flesh. Your natural desires will lead you to disaster. We don't allow our natural desires to control us through the power of the cross in Jesus Christ. He gives us the ability to conquer our flesh. Jesus now drives in the driving seat. No longer our flesh. All of us have to deny ourselves. We all have to deny our flesh. And that's the truth. And that's why I appreciate people who say, I'm going to abstain from these things. And I want to say, I believe Jesus can heal every form of sexual brokenness. Whether your sexual attraction is a same sex or a child, or, or maybe you have sexual confusion, or maybe you're addicted to pornography. I believe that Jesus can heal any form of sexual immorality. But while you wait for the healing, get off the list and don't allow your preference to lead you into practice. So Jesus spoke the truth, but he did it in love, like it says in Ephesians 4.15. It tells us exactly that. It says, instead, speak the truth in love. And you and I, as we speak the truth, need to make sure it is in love. And sometimes we say, oh, I'm speaking the truth in love, but, but it's your tone and your attitude that gives you away. And people don't pick up on the love, they just see the truth. And if you just speak in truth without love, you will offend and you will insult and you will push people away from the faith and they will want nothing to do with church and nothing to do with Jesus. Does that sound familiar? That's what we've done. And if you on the other side and say, well, I just want to love. I don't want to speak truth. I just want to love. Well, now you're again against scripture because Jesus would never do that. If you want to love like him, you've got to speak the truth in love. You see, part of the problem that the church has had towards the L, especially the LGBTQI plus community, is that we, they are either always hated or they're affirmed. Like that's the two options. They're either hated by Christians in the church or they're affirmed by the world. And yet, church, can I remind you, scripturally, we may do neither. Scripturally, we may not hate them. Scripture says if you hate a brother or sister, God is not in you. So we may not hate them and we may not affirm them because we will be affirming them to hell. There must be a third option. There must be another way. And I'm really hoping that the church can find that voice before it's too late. That other way of saying, we're going to love you. We're not going to cut you off because you live like this and block you and send you hate mail. And we're not going to say, oh, I want nothing to do with your life. You've chosen that way. No. I'm going to love you, and I'm not going to make this one thing about you the only thing we talk about, and the only thing I'm trying to create. No, I'm going to love you as a person, and find out the other things you love, and walk with you, and journey with you, and bride with you. I'm going to love you, but I'm going to speak the truth. And if you ask for my opinion, I'm going to be honest. And in the moments where I can, I'm going to speak God's word, but I'm going to do the loving and the truth thing at the same time. There's a third way besides hating and affirming. Jesus was always honest. Second thing Jesus always did is Jesus always called out religious hypocrisy. You go read through all the gospels and he's doing this again and again with the religious scribes and the Pharisees who, by the way, as we are reading those stories, we have to realize all those religious people kind of represent us. It's about the people who have what they see as a relationship with God. It's about the people who have trying to live a holy life. Jesus always calls out their hypocrisy because often because we are Christians and we're trying to live holy, we develop spiritual pride. 
And you can see that pride reflected in these Pharisees who dragged this woman, publicly shaming her. Like, aha, we've caught someone in sin. Oh man, we're better than her. I don't deserve to be thrown in the dirt, but she does. Now, I don't deserve that kind of treatment, but she does. I will throw her down because I have lived right. And she, she's a scum of the earth. She's lived terribly. In fact, this is what happened in John 8 verse 6. It says, as this is happening, Jesus stooped down. He wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. He stood up and said again, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. You know, this is the only time in all of scripture that we, we see Jesus writing something. And that word in the original Greek is this word, katagraphin, and it actually means to write an accusation against someone. And so many scholars believe this. We don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't say for sure. But many scholars believe that as Jesus went down into the sand and he started writing in the dust, he started writing the secret sins of the people who were in that moment seeing themselves as so high and mighty and righteous. And he would write in there, greed. And some would leave. Lust. And some would leave. Texting while riding a camel. (laughs) (laughs) And one by one, they all left until Jesus stands up and he's done riding in the sand and he says to this woman, where are your accusers? You see, the reality is, church, none of us are worthy to throw rocks. None of us have earned that right. And the only one who's earned that right is Jesus Christ, and he's decided not to throw it. It, Jesus will tell us that in in order to be worthy of throwing that rock, of throwing that hate, of throwing that hate speech, of throwing that divisiveness, that violence, that anger, the only way you have a right is if you have no sin. Let he who is without sin among you throw the first stone. There's only one qualification for you standing in judgment against someone else, and that's if you have no stone in your hand. And let me remind you that all of you, all of you are on some kind of list. You know that list I read from in 1 Corinthians I highlighted the piece that spoke about sexual immorality, but it wasn't the only thing that Paul mentioned. Let's pull it up again. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 to 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Look at someone again and say, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, No drunkards, no revilers, no extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The reality is Paul wasn't done with his list and he didn't only speak about sexual matters. He listed a whole lot of other things. He listed, for example, idolatry. You know what this is? Loving someone or something more than God. Anyone guilty of doing that? He listed thieves. You ever stolen? Ever taken a pen home from work that you didn't buy? He listed covetousness. This is wanting someone something that someone else has. Like some of you did when you came into the car park today. That's a nice car. He listed drunkenness. Right? Some of you, it's very recent. It's the reason you can't look in the the, the light this morning. Right? This isn't speaking against consuming alcohol. The Bible is not against consuming alcohol, but it's certainly against 
giving control of yourself to anything else, including alcohol. He mentions revilers. Now, you might have thought you were safe and like, oh, that wasn't me. You know what revilers is? Using your mouth and speech for bad. Speaking against, causing divisiveness, gossip. Okay, now it's all of us. Right? It is. We're Christians in the church. It's all of us. He mentions extortionists. This is trying to get a better deal than you deserve. Trying to work out something that you didn't really earn. Here's a reality, church. We're all on a list. And the very same thing, in fact, one I miss a big one, is greed. Ooh. Are you satisfied with how much you're earning today? Greed is a desire to want more than you have. So the next time you're offered a raise, you just say, no thanks. I mean, if you insist, but I don't need it. We're all on the list. And this is what Jesus is saying. How dare we stand in judgment against people who are on the same list we're on. He mentions all of these things and he says, if you actively and consistently live in these things without repentance, whether you're on this page or this one, If you are living in these kinds of lifestyles, if you are accepting this in your life and you're not turning away from that sin, it's evidence. It shows that you're not really following God and you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. We are all on a list. And this is not about your preferences. This is not about your natural desires. It's about your practice. And if you want to get off the list, stop practicing. Look at someone and say, stop your practice. Romans 3.23, I love it, says, for we've all sinned. All of us have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so church, we need to drop the rocks. We need to drop the hate. How can we stand in so much judgment against a group of people who are on the same list we occupy every other day? We need to drop the hate. It's only Jesus who has a right to, con- to in any way bring any judgment against that person and decide where they will spend their eternity. Our job is to love and walk in truth. Jesus spoke the truth so well and he always called out religious hypocrisy and said, don't believe you better than them. One of the worst sins we can commit is spiritual pride. Listen to what Jesus says. He tells the story in Luke 18 for verse 10. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank God that I am not like the other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. so holy just look at me so good now that tax collector stood at a distance he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed instead he beat his chest in sorrow saying god be merciful to me i'm a sinner and then jesus says i tell you the sinner not the pharisee returned home justified before god For those who exalt themselves, those who think because they're only on this page and they're not on this one, they will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do not give in to spiritual pride and self-righteousness. Do not stand throwing rocks at different groups of people. Your job is not to do that. It is to love them. Love them. Third thing Jesus did, and he's so good at this, is Jesus 
He's just always compassionate with sinners. He always shows compassion. In fact, we see in the story that one by one, these accusers leave this woman who's now lying in the dirt, full of shame. Jesus says to her in verse 10, then Jesus stood up and said to this woman, where are your accusers now? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus says, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I loved how Jesus spoke with so much love and compassion for where she was at. Was she guilty? Yes. Had she committed sexual immorality? Yes. Does Jesus call it sin? Yes. But does he have compassion on the sinner? Yes, he always does, church. And I just wish, I wish the church was better at showing compassion to the sexually immoral. If we could just get off our high horse and open the doors and say, you know what, no matter what your sexual preference, you're welcome here. Because why? We want to love you. We want you to hear the truth. I wish we could look at people like this and say, hey, it's a, this is a safe place. This is like a spiritual hospital. And no matter what you're going through, come and share it with us so we can walk a journey of healing with you. You're welcome here. If you're struggling with some kind of sexual addiction or sexual preference for children, you're welcome here. We want to help you. We want you to find healing. If you're struggling with your sexual identity, you're welcome here. If you're struggling with same-sex attraction, if you're currently stuck in an affair, if you're currently living with someone or ha having sexual intercourse with your boyfriend or girlfriend, we want you to tell us, like, you're welcome here. If the church could just be a voice of compassion, to say, it's okay, we're, we're all on a list. And we're not going to just accept our lifestyle or what the world will say is our identity. But we're going to help you walk in freedom and walk in truth. We're going to partner with you, help you turn away and repent from that sin and follow Jesus. But if the world could just see the church instead of this voice of hate and this voice of condemnation, where they feel like, well, I could never go there because I would never be accepted. What if they could hear from us that they are loved just as they are? Even though God does not want them to stay as they are, they're still loved as they are. You know, Galatians 6 verse 1 says this so well. It says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently, everyone say gently, and humbly, say humbly, help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into that same temptation yourself. Be careful not to judge the person who slept with a prostitute lest you do it yourself. Not to judge the person who stepped out of marriage in case you do it yourself. But you humbly and you gently try to restore them and heal them and love on them and speak the truth to them. Church, we have to find, we, we've got to find our voice in this. The world is changing so quickly. And let's be honest, we're, we're struggling to keep up. We're struggling to know how to respond. But I hope today you can see the way Jesus loved the sexually immoral. He was always honest. And he called out the people who were self-righteous and hypocritical. And then he showed compassion to the sinner for where they're at. And now... He wants to love people like that through you. We are his body. We are his vessel of love. It is now up to us to love the sexually immoral, to love the pedophile, the person committing bestiality, the man or woman struggling with transgenderism, the guy or woman addicted to porn, having an affair, having sex without marriage. It's up to us to love them like Jesus loves them. Can I pray for you? God, I thank you for your word. But sometimes your word is hard because it's so in the face of what society is telling us is good and normal and right. 
Father God, I want to pray for a sense of humility and gentleness over this church. God, may we put down our rocks. May we get off our religious high horse. Holy Spirit, would you point out hypocrisy in us? The places where we have stood as if we are above others, forgetting that we're on a list too. Forgetting, God, that we need to follow you too. And you've told us, firstly, to follow you in love and loving. Holy Spirit, make us better at this, I pray. God, your word tells us that if we ask for wisdom, you give it to us freely. So right now we ask for wisdom. As we deal with this world that's becoming more and more sexualized, give us wisdom. In fact, if that is your prayer, just right now where you are, you can just pray a simple prayer. God, give me wisdom. God, help me. Church, I know there are some of you that are struggling with some of these issues right now. The issue you're struggling with might be in your family, might be with a friend. It might not even be on page one. It might be on page two. Perhaps you're struggling with things that aren't sexually related, but there are other struggles in your life. And maybe today you want to make a turn. You want to come off the list. Well, the way off the list is to repent. It's not in your preference. It's in your practice that's an issue. And so perhaps today you want to say, God, I'm committing to stop. In fact, I know God loves a repentant heart. And so if that is you and you realize there's something that you're doing in your life, be it greed or idolatry or adultery, and you want to break away, you want to, you want to repent before God, wherever you are, just pray that prayer. God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me. God, I turn away from that behavior. In the name of Jesus, I turn away, I repent. God, hear my heart right now. I'm turning away. I will seek the help I need. I will get the counsel I need. I will tell someone to hold me accountable, but God, I will no longer engage in that behavior. I turn away right now. And if that is you, pray a prayer of repentance. I know God, this pleases his heart so much. God, some of you couples that are dating, you're opening the promise that's not meant for you yet. Make the prayer today, repent today. Get off the list. God, I pray that we would love like you and that the world around us would experience your healing, would experience your peace because of the way we love. Change the reputation, Lord, I pray, of your body, of your people, this hateful, condemning reputation that the church has towards these communities. God, help us get it right, I pray. May we be your voice, an accurate voice. And I pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.